0: in yet another round of the colonizing violence against the native palestinian population both muslim and christian it is tempting to reduce the situation to a political conflict while politics is no doubt at the root of the current occupation of palestine what is often forgotten is the place of palestine in muslim theology history memory and imagination salam And welcome to Islamic Palestine, episode three of the Islam on the Edges channel of the Maidan podcast, a production of Maidan, an online publication of the al al-Aq Center for Global Islamic Studies at George Mason University. My name is Ermin Sinanovic. I am curator and host of Islam on the Edges. Why talk about Palestine on the Islam on the Edges podcast? Is not Palestine at the center of the Middle East, which is predominantly Muslim? and has been so for many centuries? To begin answering this question, we should recall that the sacred area in Beit al-Mahdis or Jerusalem is referred to to in the Quran as Al-Masjid al-Aqsa or the farthest remote mosque. The edginess or the edge nature of the sacred area in question is then established in Islam by the highest authority. The other reason for it being included in Islam on the Edges is because there is a real fear and a possibility that Palestine may end up just like Al-Andalus, Muslim Spain. What was once a thriving culture became only a distant memory. One should not let the analogy go too far, though, for Palestine is too important to the Muslims to be lost forever. Something one must say in all honesty, Al-Andalus never was or will be. The case of El Andalus provides an excellent example of what happens when people are expelled from the land and when all that remains are distant memories and destroyed and repurposed buildings. By traveling to the edges of our memory, we recover important artifacts that tie us to our present and future. It is probably safe to say that many people, Muslims, or otherwise do not have strong knowledge about the central nature the sacred land in and around Palestine occupies in Muslim consciousness. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Hatem Bazian of the University of California at Berkeley and the Zaytuna College about Islamic Palestine and its place in Muslim theology, culture, history, memory, and future. My guest is Dr. Hatim Bazian, who is an assistant professor at Zaytuna College. He's also a teaching professor in the Department of Near Eastern Ethnic Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, Dr. Bazian is an advisor to the Religion, Politics, and Globalization Center at the University of California, Berkeley. In 2009, he founded the Islamophobia Research and Documentation Project at UC Berkeley. He is editor in chief of the Islamophobia Studies Journal and founder and director of the International Islamophobia Studies Consortium, as well as a co-founder of Zaytuna College. Uh, Dr. Bazian, welcome to our podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Abso- absolutely, you're most welcome. So, uh, Dr. Hatim, I want to start this topic, talking about Islamic Palestine, um, about, uh, to, to ask you about names and naming. What are the names of the historic areas of Palestine that had been used in Islamic history and culture, and which of these names do you think is most appropriate to use today?
1: If we're looking at um, the Islamic terminology that were used in relations to the area which we we call Palestine, uh, one is that uh, you have the reference uh, to al Masjid al-Aqsa, which is the uh, furthest mosque that comes to us from chapter 17 of the Qur'an, uh, where the uh, first verse says, min al-masjid al ila al-masjid al Glory be to his name, that transported his servant from the sacred precincts, which is Mecca, to the furthest mosque. So that would be the first uh, uh, usage in terms of the area within the Islamic textual tradition. Uh, second, we have in the Quranic text itself the reference to this region as Bayt al Maqdis, the house of sacredness, or al Ard al Muqaddasa, the sacred uh, uh, land or sacred place. Not, uh, I don't think the term holy is used in the Bait al-Maqdis is the sacred house rather than the holy house. Now there is holiness in the sacred, but we'll set that a- aside. The third uh, also terminology that comes to us early, from early reference in uh, Islamic texts is Aliyah uh, Kabatolia, which is a reference to the city of Jerusalem as it was referred to with the Masbittamian uh, period, uh, which would be the early period of the contact between the Islam of the Arabian Peninsula to the city of uh, Jerusalem. So there are these three references we see occurring, uh, Bait al-Maqdis, uh, al-Aqsa Alia Capitolia is in reference to uh, Jerusalem in particular, uh, as uh, Islamic text or uh, textual sources refer to
0: it in, as such. I see. So when uh, the Quran refers to Al Masjid al Aqsa, and when the Muslims talk about the Al Masjid al Aqsa, what specific area uh, is referred to? Is it is it synonymous with the Temple of Solomon? Is that it, or is it something different? Uh, obviously the Qur'an is referring to al Masjid Al-Aqsa, the, uh, the farthest mosque. Uh, somebody could say, well, there was no mosque at that time, you know, when, when the, the Qur'an was revealed. So what is it really referring to?
1: Well, in here, the idea of a mosque is not to be confused with the building that represents the mosque or represent the sacred Uh the reference to Al-Aqsa Mosque also comes to us from a hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, Alaihi which uh, the Prophet is reported to have said that the first uh, place of worship that has been designated, a place on earth, is the one in Mecca, which is the sacred house in Mecca. And then the second is the one that is in Jerusalem, which is Al-Aqsa Mosque. And between them, in the hadith, it says four years. The understanding, there are commentators on, uh, in the Qur'an, a number of commentators, I look at almost 26 different commentators on that. Uh, some says that the first designation was actually during the uh, um, descension of Adam to the earth. That The first act of Adam was to locate a place where he would actually reconnect with the divine because it's not only that it's casting out of paradise but also there is a spatial uh, separation and there is a hadith or a reference that the angel uh, guided adam to the location where the sacred house in Mecca is to be located as a as the sacred site so there is that reference relative to Mecca and then the other is that there is the site in Jerusalem and as such that was also would have been within the same time period of the adamic presence. The second reference is in relations to Abraham because the Quranic tradition uh, said in chapter 2 of the Quran uh, that God commanded uh, Abraham to build uh, the Kaaba the sacred house. Uh, uh, and it is to elevate or build the pillars of the sacred in Mecca and he is uh, supported by uh, his son Ishmael at the time to build the Kaaba. Similarly that Abraham is connected to uh, the building and the lo- and, uh, constructing the Al-Aqsa mosque in Jerusalem. Now whether that was designating the site or building is still uh, is to be uh, you know subject to commentators, but the uh, but the interesting thing is that when Abraham arrived into the land of Canaan, that the Al Aqsa site or that plateau was already a site of religious observance. So what we could point is that there is a pre-Abrahamic period uh, in Jerusalem, and raises the question of prophetic uh, um, sending of prophets to. Mankind before the time of Abraham. So there is that aspect uh, to it. So when Muslims today speak about the Al-Aqsa Mosque, they speak about the the plateau that is about 139 acres uh, that has many different buildings, nine different prayer niches or prayer sites, including many other areas uh, in there. When the... Muslims arrived in uh, Jerusalem during the time of Umar. There's a discussion that takes place that uh, we find in the uh, collection of uh, Sahih Muslim, as well as in Sahih al-Bukhari, where a dialogue takes place between uh, Umar and Sophornius, who was the patriarch of Jerusalem on the one hand, and then between Umar and Ka'b al ahbar who have converted to Islam and was in the company of Umar, of trying to locate the site of the sacred, where the Prophet ascended to the heavens from. And uh, this where Umar actually, as well as the companions that were with him, search uh, to see what the Prophet described in terms of the rock that he has ascended from. In that dialogue, the Sifronius supposedly uh, invites Umar uh, to the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre as the site of the sacred. And Umar says that after looking at it, his, that's not what the prophet described. And after a while, they come upon the plateau that at the time, as is described, it says that it was a garbage dump. Uh, meaning that there was uh, in this ruin, there was not any structures in there. And Umar identifies the rock that is on there that uh, is where the uh, Mi'raj occurred, the ascension to the heavens of the Prophet. Ka'b ahbar enters into the conversation as the discussion evolves on where to build the mosque. And he converted
0: from today, right? What is it? What did he convert from Judaism he converted to Islam? To,
1: in Judaism to Islam, so he was a he was Muslim already. So there is a conversation The Kaab al Ahbar uh, gives Omar the idea. Says, "Why don't we build the mosque behind the rock?" And in reference, he says, "We combine between the qibla of David, Dawood, the Prophet Dawood, which is a prophet of Islam as well in the Quran, and our direction of the Kaaba." Uh, so in here, the reference to this being the rock or the site of the Prophet Dawood comes from the, his understanding of the Jewish tradition as it relates to the sacred. Umar comes with the opinion and says, no, we will build the mosque, meaning the physical building, facing the Kaaba, and we'll keep the rock behind us. So the mosque, which we call the physical building, the Al-Aqsa mosque, is what we call in Jerusalem, al Masjid al-Qibli, which is the one that faces the Qibla toward all the way at the end. It's all the way at the end, yes. It's all the way at the end. Now the Dome of the Rock gets built to cover over the rock that is the site of the ascension of the Prophet during the Mi'raj. So the question, is this the location of the uh, the, uh, Temple of Solomon or not? This is where we have the reference from Ka'ba al-Akbar in that dialogue between him and Umar. Umar does not affirm it nor negates it. Rather, he actually takes the opinion that we should build the mosque facing the Kaaba, where is our direction of prayers.
0: Yes, um, thank you so much for that. Uh, I was struck so much by your connecting the prophets from Adam to Ibrahim, Abraham, to Ismail, Ishmael, to all the way to Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and what was really interesting is that when uh, I was reminded of the hadith in which the Prophet had mentioned that he is the missing brick, mm-hmm. you know that example of me and the prophets who came before me is like a person who built a house, and then you know the the whole hadith, and he identified. It seems to me that uh, the way you're describing sacred history. What uh, in some ways seems to have been missing in the Old Testament, the New Testament presentation of that sacred history is the Ismail side of the story, mm-hmm. that side of Abraham's progeny, which seemed to have, the, the circle had been closed to Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Anything that you can um, maybe think of this and, and connect it to the sacred history and to the history of uh, of al makdis
1: as far as Muslims' view of the lineage of prophetshood or, or the prophetic tradition, is that Muslims believe in all of the prophets that have came before the prophet Muhammad. Now, the Quran mentions 25 by name, uh, but in the prophetic tradition, there are actually over 100,000 prophets that were sent to mankind. And then the Quran affirms it, that there isn't a people except that, God have sent them a messenger, uh, or a prophet, to speak in their own tongue. So, uh, in here, Islam affirms the continuity of the fig- of the prophetic figure as the conduit for divine communication to mankind and guidance. Guidance uh, in relations to the Islamic tradition. Uh both Abraham and Ishmael uh, play a prominent role in the uh, emergence of the sacred in the Kaaba or in Mecca uh, because uh, Abraham takes uh, his wife Hagar and her son Ishmael and locate them in the barren valley of Mecca. And it is uh, there's the miracle that is attributed to uh, that episode of Hagar and Ishmael, where she's in a, this barren valley and uh, they run out of water. And uh, Hagar runs between two hills, uh, searching for water, seeing for help. And miraculously, the water of Zamzam or the spring water of Zamzam springs with a miraculous intervention of angelic intervention, and the water of Zamzam comes out of there. And it is upon that episode, meaning Hagar and Ishmael, and the emergence of water of Zamzam, that Mecca develops uh, and uh, a whole tradition of linking back to Abraham through Ishmael uh, that develops the lineage that from it comes the Prophet Muhammad, thus connecting back to the Abrahamic tradition. In the Islamic tradition, that the dominant opinion when the command to sacrifice, uh, when the command to Abraham to sacrifice his son, the dominant opinion in the Islamic tradition is that Ishmael was the subject of the sacrifice uh, because he was at the time the only son for his father. And in, as such, the command to sacrifice is attributed to, uh, to Abraham and Ishmael, and it is to, occurring in Mecca. But there are also a, a minority opinion or an opinion within the Islamic tradition that still affirms and says it was Isaac and the location being in uh, Jerusalem. So both in here, Islamic tradition does not, in essence, negate or attempts to isolate in any way the continuity of revelations beforehand and relating the sacred, Uh, To all of the prophetic figures, they are seen to be as, in essence, a brotherhood that were sent by God to mankind to guidance. And each one of them, if if the central message is the oneness of God and to live ethical, moral life in accordance to the set of laws, if we say the Ten Commandments in one way or the other, Uh, and to uphold uh, really the responsibility of being the witness of God on earth. So in this sense, that's how you could connect the sacred in relations to both the locations as well as the lineages that we speak about. Now, it is the propensity of human being to try to use bloodline or what you call uh, a a prototype of nationalism, tribe and uh, uh, relationships as a way to isolate themselves from the broader humanity. And I think Islamic tradition is counter to that, even though that some within the Muslim world might take this as their way of expressing their uniqueness, but I think Islamic tradition, textual and otherwise, is a
0: countermeasure to it. Thank you so much. I I think that was really important, connecting the sacred histories of Mecca and Jerusalem. Now, uh, Dr. Hatim, I'm sure you're aware of the sometimes deliberative efforts to minimize or negate the importance of al-Qudas. That is to say that it's really ephemeral to Islamic theology and culture, that somehow Jerusalem, Beit al-Maqdis, al-Quds is not as important to Islamic theology and culture as, for instance, Mecca and Medina. So can you please enlighten us about what is the actual place of al-Quds in Islamic sources? <clears throat>
1: I think what we have to look at it, again, in layered and also historical continuities. One, when Muslims read the narrative of Abraham they're not reading the narrative of a foreigner they're reading a narrative of a prophet of their own Uh, when they read the narrative of Moses, they're not reading Moses as a foreigner they're reading Moses as a prophet of their own Uh, when they read the narrative of of Isaac of Jacob, of Solomon of David, of Isa all uh, are prophetic figures so the Quran, actually the one of the most dominant narratives in the Quran is the narrative of Moses and for Muslims, Moses is a prophet of Islam because he glorified the oneness of God and was sent to assert this, uh, this narrative so that's one aspect of it is that all of the prophetic figures that tra- traversed lived and uh, received revelation in uh, the, uh, in Palestine are part of this uh, Islamic narrative. Second is that there are at least two chapters in the Quran that are dedicated to uh, Al-Aqsa, dedicated to the sacred in, in Jerusalem, chapter uh, uh, of Al-Isra, which is uh, the night journey, and the uh, chapter of a najm the star and in essence uh, the both the uh, chapter of al-isra speaks of the night journey where najm speaks of the ascension so there is those two uh, important uh, chapters of the quran that relates to this then broadly speaking there is a whole uh, prophetic traditions that speaks about the uniqueness and the special status of uh, Jerusalem and the special status of the sacred connected to it both in terms of uh, the what Muslims should do to express the affinity to the sacred and more importantly also things or developments thereafter in Islamic history as well as scenarios pointing to end of time type of religious uh, dedication to the sacred so all those are intertwined Lastly, I would say that uh, Muslims who <clears throat> engage in uh, spiritual uh, journeys, there is a considerable focus on the literature in the sacred, in Muslim sacredness, whether you speak about Sufism or purification of the heart and so on. The mi'raj, which is the ascension, plays an important uh, role in many of the literatures. For example, many of the uh, masters of spirituality, they'll say, your prayers is a form of daily ascension, right? because you actually come into encounter with the divine as you prostrate in the same way that the prophet went into Sadat al-Muntaha, into the, uh, into the outermost, and engaged with the divine. So much of this, the literature on spirituality is actually connected to the uh, Jerusalem, to connected to the sacred in there, with the understanding that Jerusalem does present a, a gateway to the heavens because the prophet ascended to the heavens ascended to divine presence from that location so there is a understanding a miraculous celestial gate in essence uh, that uh, connects the temporal to the uh, to the divine presence in the heavens and it is located in jerusalem so all this is an expression of how muslims relate Uh, to to Jerusalem and to the Al-Aqsa as the site of sacredness.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, Now, let's move to uh, the post-prophetic history, so to say. And I know I'm asking a lot now in this question because I'm asking you to give us in a few minutes Mm -hmm. uh, an overview of pretty much the whole Muslim history. But if you could maybe in a few points or bullets uh, Tell us, how have different Muslim administrations treat this geographical area? Starting, you know, with the Rashidun, the rightly guided caliphs, you know, when the Omer comes to Jerusalem, you already talked about that. Then later, the Umayyads, the Abbasids, the Mamluks, the Ottomans. Uh, how did they treat this geographical area? Did this, this geographical area have a special place and in what sense? Yeah.
1: Uh, I wanted maybe a li- uh, to begin this conversation with the following that the population of Palestine embraced Islam at the hands of the Prophet. So we get a delegation coming from Palestine on the ninth year of the Hijrah to meet the prophet in Medina and embrace Islam at his hand. And we have that uh, references in uh, uh, Sirat Ibn Hisham, as well as in the uh,
0: other historical texts. This is known as the year of the delegation. The year
1: of delegations, where a delegation comes, uh, and one of the more important figures is Tamim bin Ausiddari, who leads one of the leaders of the delegation that comes to meet the prophet, who also was a uh, knowledgeable person of the uh, biblical text, meaning he was Christian and coming and leading a delegation. They embrace Islam, which would be about 10 years before the arrival of the Muslim armies during the reign of Umar. Uh, for what we call Islamic uh, conquest. It's important in this because there is often this uh, conflation between Muslim military arrival with Islamization. That in here what we have is Islamization in Palestine occur before actually the arrival of uh, Muslim armies. Uh, In the Khulafa al-Rashidun, Jerusalem played an important side because it was understood to be the uh, uh, sacred side. So both at the time of Omar, time of Uthman, less so at the time of Ali because Ali's uh, reign was uh, a very uh, difficult period, five years almost in an intense civil war. Uh, So not only that, Palestine or Jerusalem uh, took a back role. Even Medina itself was ransacked during the the lat- later days of Osman, And then Ali had to take his supporters and move to Iraq. So not only that, uh, the sacreds in Mecca, Medina, but also Jerusalem took a, uh, a back seat. And in essence, you could say that uh, uh, the Umayyad period were... Uh, Uh, Jerusalem and Palestine plays an important role. During the reign of Muawiyah, the narrative relative to Muawiyah, uh, you could read in Ibn al-Athir or even uh, Tabari, that Muawiyah used to spend six months of the year uh, sometimes in Jerusalem. Uh, Rather than being in Damascus, he will spend the time in Jerusalem and spending considerable time, period of attending to it. The architectural construction of Jerusalem in the way that we see it today really owes a lot to the uh, Umayyad period, around from 680, 685, uh, where the plans uh, for really building the the Al-Aqsa mosque and then the Dome of the Rock. Uh, So the Umayyad uh, actually are credited. Uh, of building the two main buildings that we have, the Dome of the Rock itself, and then uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque. And that became a focal point uh, because really, uh, especially the Dome of the Rock is an architectural masterpiece in terms of its construction. It's one of the early monuments or early sacred monuments that are built in Islam. And I also look at it as a form of uh, what you call early form of interfaith debate, Because on the outer walls or outer surroundings of the Dome of the Rock is written the chapter of Mary, chapter of Miriam, the mother of Jesus. So it's a form, a nod to uh, Jerusalem having a Christian population across the, the road on the other side is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So there was a form. Of using architecture uh, in order to engage in interfaith dialogue. Today we do that on what you call uh, Facebook, Instagram, and all the modern. So the building itself, architecture, was a form of religious uh, debate. Uh, when the Umayyad lost power to the Abbasid, uh, Jerusalem was actually uh, faced a, um, a dire consequences in this, because it was uh, the center of the Islamic rule have shifted to uh, to Baghdad, or the, to Iraq, and then the development of Baghdad. Uh, and it wasn't until after a period of time, uh, almost after the first hundredth year of the Abbasid, that the attention to Jerusalem gets to be renewed, uh, where some of the early tension that was present between the Umayyad and the Abbasid receded. The Umayyad have lost their power and the Abbasid, as they became confident and uh, 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 cemented and stabilized their rule, uh, attention to the sacred actually um, uh, began to shift to redevelopment, reconstruction of uh, 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 the uh, al-Aqsamas and the sacred compound. There were a number of earthquakes that took place that uh, damaged the building, And at a certain point, the Abbasid were actually uh, turning away from uh, uh, sending the resources that are needed uh, to reconstruct uh, the damaged property, but then later on, they actually uh, uh, brought about the resources that are needed. So you could see that there was a shift between the Umayyad and the Abbasid. Uh, During the Crusades uh, period, uh, Palestine gets to be uh, really transformed in the sense, and in particular also Jerusalem. That uh, for 92 years the Al Aqsa uh, compound was the uh, the headquarters of the uh, Knights of the Templars, uh, who were the uh, you know the knights of the Crusaders. Transformed the Al Aqsa Mosque into a church, uh, also using some of the facilities for their own uh, forces. So for 92 years Al-Aqsa Mosque was not uh, used uh, by Muslims, was prohibited to be used, it was transformed into the Crusaders, as well as many other religious sites that were uh, uh, Muslim sites came to be uh, in uh, destroyed as well as uh, being uh, damaged
0: during that period. Yeah, and I'm glad you're bringing that up because... um... When people are talking today about the occupation of Palestine, um, this is not the first time that the Muslims had lost the control over that territory. So maybe if you could reflect briefly on the similarities and differences, to what extent is the current occupation similar or different to the crusaders' occupation of Palestine?
1: Well, uh, Palestine has been the crossroad of contestation of powers and attempts to lay claim to it from the earliest uh, periods in history. And therefore, the arrival of the Crusaders, which was one of the most violent uh, periods, not to discount the current period, in relations to the history of the region, uh, the Crusaders uh, in their own reference, their own record that when they conquered Jerusalem, they put the sword to everybody in the city, and the references is, is that blood was running on uh, uh, all over the city uh, some a Muslim,
0: right they killed also Christians of other Muslims
1: denominations. Christian, uh, Muslims, uh, Jews, the wrong Christians because Eastern Christians were seen to be wrong Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also as they came uh, fr- through their march from Europe, uh, also the, in any area that they uh, came across, whether it's Syria or Anatolia, likewise, they actually uh, wreaked havoc uh, throughout um, the, the region that uh, they have, um, you know, uh, came through. So uh, the Crusaders period was a destructive period in uh, Palestinian history. But you could also compare it to the current destruction that has been visited by uh, Zionism. I would say the crusaders um, claimed that their sacred belongs to them. And therefore, uh, as a way of uh, uh, coming to the sacred, as a way to absolve their sin, as well as to rectify their relationship with God, that this was a sacred mission that they were undertaking. And as such... Uh, everyone that is not of their kind, of not of their um, faith, uh, is in essence have to be killed and eliminated. One could say that Zionism today, in essence, operating in a manifest destiny, claiming that God gave them this uh, this land, and using a form of uh, uh, ethno nationalism in order to lay claim and uh, evict and uh, ethnically cleanse the population there as a way to say that this is the way for us to articulate our relationship to the sacred. So in essence, Jerusalem and Palestine is going through a similar experience to the Crusaders and therefore from the vantage point of the Palestinians, when they look at Zionism and look at Israel, they are making the comparisons between the ravages that brought on by the Crusaders that are brought out by Zionism. The fact that uh, uh, Zionist Jews experience anti-Semitism in Europe, uh, for the Palestinians, that is just not a uh, a cause for them to face the suffering or to face the ravages of Zionism as absolving European history of what they have done to uh, uh, the Zionist Jews who... Uh, came into Palestine. So there's often there's a rationalization, in essence, of why we're doing this is because of what happened to us. But again, uh, for me, this is a a causality that is being used to rationalize rather than to actually understand the dynamics and its effects on the Palestinians.
0: Yeah, thank you. So if we fast forward to today, who is in charge of Islamic sites today? Considering that you know Palestine does not have a proper government, um, who is in charge of the Al qaaf for the endowments? And I'm I'm sure that's going to connect us also to the Ottoman period and the, and the break with the Ottoman period as well in the area.
1: Yeah, maybe it's it's good to start that the Ottomans actually during the period of the Ottoman, beginning from around. 1517 or 1516 period onward, the Ottoman reconstructed and reinvigorated uh, the structure of Awqaf in Palestine. They also, uh, when we think about the old wall of Jerusalem, that we uh, it's actually they reconstructed the wall and fortified it, uh, made a point to actually set up a whole network of Awqaf, especially uh, to serve the pilgrims, uh, because the uh, pilgrimage um, uh, caravan used to gather in Damascus, and then uh, the caliph will come from, uh, the Ottoman caliph will come and lead the caravan, and as such, either to come back, to stop at Jerusalem first, or on the way back, uh, you stop at Jerusalem. So there's this tradition of building a to serve the pilgrims, which connect us also to... Uh, the Moroccan community to the Indian community, to the Bukhara community, to uh, various communities that what Jerusalem uniqueness during the Ottoman period is that each of the communities a awqaf to serve as their pilgrims and those who want to come and spend time on the sacred. And in particular to speak about the Moroccan quarter, which was completely wiped out during the 1960, post-1967 Israeli occupation, of Jerusalem, the courtyard that today we look at and say this is the Wailing Wall courtyard. That courtyard was actually all Moroccan endowments. Uh, early, the early part was set up by uh, uh, Abu Midian Al ghawf as well as Muhammad Al Marini. These were of Moroccan and uh, set up awqaf in there to serve the pilgrims that will come from Morocco on the way in and the way out. So the uh, uh, Atman set up administrative structure that divided uh, the region into what we call Sanjuk, which is a like a county or a state type. So you'll have the Jerusalem Sanjuk, you had the uh, Nablus Sanjuk, you had the uh, Gaza Sanjuk in the south, and then sometimes uh, the Sanjuk of Beirut or Tripoli will actually have part of the northern uh, part of Palestine. So administratively, they set up uh, this uh, structure.
0: And, they have in the Balkans as well.
1: Yeah, so it's again, it's, it's their administrative infrastructure, appointments to positions, whether it's the mufti positions, uh, the overseer of the uh, uh, religious endowments, and uh, they used to send annually what's called the surra, which is the... Uh, Uh, allocations that to be distributed, the governors to be appointed, as well as the uh, army appointees who were being appointed in there. So that was the administrative, even though we know that in the 19th century, the Ottomans went through a whole bunch of reforms, endowment reforms and so on. But uh, there was records, uh, there was systematic uh, attention to the religious sites, and uh, they administered them in a really... Uh, careful way to make sure that the sacred is always attended to. As the British uh, came with the mandate, uh, really the British began the process of undoing and administratively transforming uh, Palestine and making it possible for uh, the takeover of vast uh, public land or vast land and, and assigning it especially to uh, zionism uh, and began the whole transformation geographical transformation administrative transformation legal transformation of palestine as such once we get into israel occupation of 48 and uh, 67 one part of the of the 1948 is that israel usurped and took over vast uh, number of uh, religious properties and endowments. Uh, Hundreds of mosques were actually either completely demolished, uh, wiped out, or also taken over uh, by Israel in 1948. And there are actually an interesting book on uh, sacred monuments in Palestine published in 1925, It'll be an interesting research, I, I don't know if I have the time, but to go and actually trace the sacred sites that were enumerated in 1925 in the text and see where they are at uh, right now. Which gets me into the administrative structure. How is Al-Aqsa Mosque is administered? Now, Al-Aqsa supposedly is under the administrative, is the administrative responsibility of the Jordanian government. Uh, this is as a, as a result of Jordan taking uh, over the West Bank post-1948 and uh, becoming the effective uh, governing authority from 48 to 67, And post-1967 continued to allocate the resources, make the appointments, uh, uh, even the educational infrastructure, all that was managed by Jordan administratively. Uh, By 1987, when the first uprising uh, took place, Jordan uh, uh, disconnected itself from responsibility for all of the West Bank, but maintained authority to administer the uh, Awqaf in uh, Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So Jordan still is the recognizable authority uh, for administering the Al-Aqsa Awqaf moved to the Oslo agreement. The Oslo agreement created the Palestinian Authority. Mm-hmm. Within the Palestinian Authority, they also set up ministry of Awqaf. So sometimes, which actually you see it often, that there is a mufti that is appointed uh, with from the Palestinian Authority, and there is a mufti that is appointed by the Jordanians to oversee the Awqaf. So this... Is uh, in essence uh, the, uh, I don't want to say the chaos, but it's the unique circumstances that you find relative to uh, the administration of Al Aqsa uh, Mosque and how the Jordanian, on the one hand, the Jordanian government, uh, which has the official recognized responsibility, and then the Palestinian Authority that is attempting or at least is in a position to lo- also lay claim to representation and attention to Al-Aqsa Mosque.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, If one is to go to Palestine today and speak to the Palestinians, and you yourself are Palestinian and of Palestinian origin, how does Palestine, especially Islamic Palestine, live in their memory? How do they recall it? Because to my understanding, a place continues to exist as long as it continues to exist in people's memory. So even though many of the lands in the areas are occupied physically, how does Palestine, especially Islamic Palestine, continue to live in that memory?
1: Yeah, I could answer this question from the most recent response of both the Palestinians uh, in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, in Gaza in 1948. I do think that Israel have made a uh, Netanyahu himself made a massive miscalculation. Uh, he thought that he would instigate the current round of uh, uh, assault, abuse, and uh, violence against the Palestinians in order for him to possibly uh, uh, improve his political standing, as you know. two uh, two days prior to the assault on uh, Al-Aqsa compound area, the uh, uh, Israeli president uh, assigned the responsibility to form a new government uh, to the uh, other political uh, party since Netanyahu failed to form a government.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And Netanyahu is facing uh, two massive corruption cases. And he's been delaying this uh, for some time under the the, uh, understanding that he has immunity as long as he's serving in a prime minister position. I'm saying this because he miscalculated he thought it would be business as usual. We will uh, uh, swing our muscles, but the police, harass the Palestinians sharpen the uh, support to the settlers, and this will actually get his political
0: uh, uh, fortunes to be higher. As he had done many times before in the past.
1: Not only him, but also Yehud Barak, others. It's again, uh, as we know, you flex your muscle on the Palestinians and you'll get the cheering crowd. Right? Racism works, and we also can see it works in many places. What was interesting is that this occurred during the month of Ramadan, where usually, as you know, people spend most of their time in reading the Quran, in attending the mosque, and in particular in Jerusalem, people spend their time in Al-Aqsa Mosque almost 24-7. You have people that do i'tikaf, many of the Jerusalem families, as well as families from 48, they usually come and break their fast in Ramadan in the Uh, courtyards. Actually, have these, what you call, communal iftars that uh, took place. So for the Palestinians, while the national identity is there, you cannot speak of Palestinian national identity without the sacred, without Jerusalem, without Al-Aqsa Mosque. And it's, again... Palestinians' response to the Israeli assault is that, yes, we are weakened by the occupation. Yes, we might not have all the abilities of freedom of movement and uh, uh, the amenities to live as other people around the world. And you might have the gun to our chest and our head. But our relationship to the sacred is literally a red line that separates our relationship, temporal relationship to Zionism and Israel, to our relationship to God. Mm -hmm. And therefore, people's response was commensurate to their imaginary relationship of the sacred because they see themselves, right? The the Kaaba is said as to be the house of God. But also the Palestinians, as it relates to al-Aqsamahs, they see themselves as the people of God, sitting and protecting and preserving the sacred and the gate, of the, diva- the gate to the heavens, between the earth and heavens, and they see themselves as upholding that relationship. And when the Israeli army attempted to disrupt this, that imaginary t- was transformed into immediate response of people and that's what you witness in terms of that imaginary that is always there right? uh been activated uh and i don't think there is a return back to the pre uh period relative to what the palestinians are experiencing today
0: that's really a fascinating answer uh, really providing a good overview of political theology undergirding the the palestinian worldview if you will uh that is rooted Uh, When we talk about Palestinians, obviously we're not talking only about Muslims. We're talking about Muslims and Christians uh, as well. Uh, So, Dr. Hatim, maybe uh, as we are getting closer to ending our podcast, maybe I can ask you this final question, and that is, how is Islamic Palestine to be preserved for future generations? What is our collective obligation toward it today?
1: Well, uh, in terms of preserving Uh, Muslim Palestine I do think it begins with Jerusalem it begins with Al-Aqsa mosque it begins with the understanding the both the sacred significance uh, of this location but also thinking of the historical historical continuities in there Uh, you know for example many uh, read Ihyya Ulum al-Din of Al-Ghazali, Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. Abu Hamid al-Ghazali wrote his Ihyya al-Din in part in Jerusalem, when he spent his time in there, and then spent sometimes in meditations in Damascus. So you cannot read that literature without looking at, at there, uh, at the centrality and uh, uh, the history of this place. So part of it is preserving that relationship. Uh, for Muslims to actually also think of the massive uh, footprint of uh, sacredness that is infused throughout the land, And I think for those who do research, and again speaking to individuals who are interested in research and work, uh, uh, researching all the sacredness that are there, there's often a propensity for much of the focus on Palestine is only to think of trying to locate the biblical text and important as it is in terms of reading and thinking, but there is a much richer, as well as continuous historical linkages in there uh, that are infused with almost 1400 years of actual detailed history that needs to be navigated. So for those who are engaged in work and research to think about this component, uh, and every part of it could be subject to investigation. Uh, another area that I'm also interested in is, is the, the area of uh, researching, documenting, and uh, reviving the whole infrastructure of Awqaf that is there, uh, both from the early period, the Ottoman period, but also new Awqaf that needs to be set. I, uh, For example, individuals who uh, are in the business of digitizing manuscripts. Uh, since Palestinian uh, uh often have been subject to massive violation of their uh, academic and intellectual capacity to the level of stealing their own books. So preserving our written material, uh, digitizing this and making those collections as part of the way to engage with uh, uh, Muslim Palestine is very important for us to do so and uh, really engage with. The last, I would say I do encourage Muslims to visit Palestine to express solidarity as well as relating to Palestinians, but this should not be done under the whole rubric of normalization and trying to think of Palestine and Palestinians through Zionist lens. So if you're thinking about, uh, let me take a trip uh, and go hand in hand with uh, my Zionist colleagues, Uh, This, I would say, from Palestinians is a non-starter because you're violating their call uh, for centering Palestine and Palestinians, especially as we are experiencing a period of intense apartheid and intense human rights violations. But if you want to visit and experience Palestine through Palestinian eyes, spend time with Palestinians, uh, uh, spend time in Palestinian facilities, hotels, and people to take you to actually tour to infuse yourself with what does it mean to actually look at Palestine through Palestinian Muslim as well as Christian eyes, and I would say increasingly some of our uh, Jewish allies that want to pursue a decolonized vision uh, of Palestine and their relationship with the Palestinians. So that's, what for me, what I would recommend as well.
0: Thanks. So to be more specific and maybe to conclude on this, What are the areas or the places not to be missed if one is to go and do exactly what you just said? Obviously, people are going to go to Al-Masr al-Aqsa, Dome of the Rock, the obvious, right? But what are some of the other sacred places that you think anyone who wants to learn about the Palestinians and especially Muslim or Islamic Palestine needs to to visit? Well, you for sure have to visit Al-Khalil uh, for people
1: know it in english as Hebron which is a problem in terms of terminology it's Al-Khalil which is the site of the burial of the prophet Ibra- Abraham and his family it is also the location of the oldest continuously managed waqf in islamic history uh, because endowment. this is endowment this is the endowment that was uh, set up by the prophet to Tamim bin al and the Palestinians and uh, they still run one of the oldest soup kitchens, possibly, I would say, in the world. Uh, so when you visit in there, you actually are uh, served a, a soup uh, from the endowment that has been continuously in existence in there. So you could do actually to visit there, to visit uh, some of the sites in Nablus uh, as well. It has uh, profits, uh, accounts. Their attribution, that is the, the Prophet Yusuf, alayhi salam, grave, the Jordan Valley. Uh, also, there is a number of religious sites and sacred sites in there that you actually could visit. And then uh, I would also recommend for people to visit the Christian site, because for us also Jesus is a, uh, is, uh, is a prophet of Islam. So the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, to visit Beit Lahim, to do up the, 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 the Nazareth. Uh, all those places for individuals who are interested also in crusaders and Salah al-Din's history. Uh, you could also visit some of the crusader castles uh, that's both straddle the uh, border on Jordan side and Palestine as well as in the north, but also going to the areas on the coastal areas where some of the endowments from the time of the uh, Ayyubid dynasty into the Ottoman dynasty there also present, visiting the city of Akka, Uh, which actually uh, uh, defeated Napoleon. For those who study Napoleon genius, uh, that Palestinians defeated Napoleon, and he had to trail back to Egypt, and then uh, the British confronted him right there at the coast of Alexandria in Egypt. So that's also a site site of resistance, not only in relations to Napoleon, but also in relations to the early periods of uh, the British and Zionism as well. So there is many of these locations. Then, if you go down to Gaza, Gaza is known as Gaza hashim which is the grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ that is buried in Gaza, and it's been always a historical site of trade and, and, uh, as a, a point of departure to link to North Africa as well as hug the coast to go up to Europe for the trade that was coming through the Red Sea or through the Indian Ocean. So all these are, again, if there's such a rich history. Uh, uh, and then I recommend for people to visit the oldest olive tree in the world, which is up to, up to approximately 6,500 years old. Right, uh, So there's places to live and to go and visit in that way as well.
0: Well, you're making me wanting to go right now. If only the conditions, uh, uh, inshallah, allow and permit all of us to go and visit very, very soon. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, I've been talking to Dr. Hatem Bazian of the University of California Berkeley and Zaytuna College on Muslim Palestine for Islam on the Edges channel of the Maidan podcast at George Mason University. Thank you so much, Dr. Bazian.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me. A pleasure.